This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Well, good morning to everybody. You may recall I had the uh, honor of preaching at this time last year too, so how fortunate for you that you have to hear me again this time of year. You know, we know that the crowds are going to be a little slimmer maybe, so that's why we have to do that. Um, just a quick word about Christmas. I don't know about you, but am I the only one that, you know, you, you build up to Christmas. There's like this sense of magic and preparation and anticipation, and then the day after, maybe even the day of, after the morning passes or whatever, You sort of sometimes maybe feel a little bit deflated, or maybe it's, uh, you're like, wow, it's over already. Uh, Maybe there's some disappointment or something like that. I got to thinking about that, and um, that really makes no sense at all, because what we're celebrating, uh, you know, you've heard, remember that Jesus is the reason for the season, right? And we do, we remember his birth, and that's good that we remember his birth, but uh, it isn't the birth that matters, ultimately. Ultimately, it's the person and work of Christ that matters, and the celebration and joy of his birth was, you know, it's not about a cute baby, it's not about a bunch of presents, it's not about all the festivities that go along with it, it's about the coming of the promised Messiah, who alone could atone for the sins of this dying world. So today, I'm going to take a little slightly different approach, and uh, We're not going to talk about Christmas per se. Uh, What we're going to talk about is the life of Moses uh, in order to fully appreciate Christ, I hope. And I hope to bear that out as we commemorate his birth this Christmas season. Now, you may have heard of a type or shadow before. A type, as it relates to Scripture, is simply put, it's a representation of one thing by another. And one of the wonderful things about the Bible is how everything points to Christ, particularly in the Old Testament. What I'd like to do today is show you how Moses is a type of Christ, and in order to to do this, I want to show you how his life and his experiences were really a means of pointing towards the eventual work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, just a couple of things to point out first of all. You know, salvation came from an unlikely source for both the Hebrews, as it relates to Moses, and for the Jews when they thought of Jesus as their Messiah. Moses was not esteemed at birth. In fact, he was ordered murdered by a king, Pharaoh. Christ, too, was not esteemed at his birth. As we know, he was born in a stable. He was laid in a feeding trough. Later, he, too, was ordered by a king, or ordered murdered by a king, Herod. In Exodus 4, verses 10 through 12, we see that Moses was not exactly the picture of the character that he was to play. He told God, he said, I can't do what you're asking me to do because I'm not eloquent. And if you notice in that passage, God did not deny that. He didn't say, Moses, you are eloquent. You're being too humble. Instead, he just said, I'm going to give you the words. I'm going to be there to help you. In fact, Moses was seen as a murderer. Exodus 2, 11 through 12. You may remember that story. And his brethren at the time when he stepped forward to be their savior, they were unwilling to let that go. Likewise, Jesus was seen as an illegitimate child. The Jews would not look past that accusation. One of the great issues for the Jews in Christ's time 
was that they were looking for a warrior king who would fight and conquer for them. You know, Rome controlled them and they would have loved nothing more than for another King David to come along and kick the Romans' tail. And that's not what he came to do. His message of peace, love, and spiritual kingship is not what they wanted. He just didn't pick, fit the picture of the Messiah. Just like Moses didn't fit the picture of the deliverer of the Hebrews. And by the way, Moses did not answer, you know, he didn't rise to the occasion and call on God. God, give me something to do for you. That's not what it, how it worked. In fact, it was the other way around. God called on him, Exodus 3, 2 through 3. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he, being Moses, looked and behold, the bush burned with fire and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight why the bush is not burnt. God had to get his attention first. You know, when Moses came across that burning bush, you may recall that scripture indicates he'd been roaming in a desert, the wilderness of Midian, for around 40 years. He was 40 years old when he fled Egypt and he spent 40 years wandering around in this desert, shepherding sheep. By this time, he was probably no longer on the minds of the Hebrews that were still enslaved. He was probably no longer on the mind of the Egyptians from whom he'd fled. And there was no indication that God had something to say to or through him. But when God did speak, we see that it was not by random chance. Space of time, that 40 years, it had not eroded his purpose or his plan for his chosen people. He still remembered the covenant he'd made with Abraham and he would save his people. Likewise, when God sent his son Jesus to the earth, something similar was going on. Instead of 40 years of silence, there was 400 years of silence. The 400 years of silence refers to the time between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, during which God did not speak through prophets to the Jewish people. The 400 years of silence began with the warning that closed the Old Testament. He said, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. That's Malachi 4, verses 5 through 6. That 400 years of silence ended with the coming of John the Baptist, the Messiah's forerunner. God called Jesus to a great and mighty work, just like he did with Moses. And Jesus made sure to say that same thing about himself. Just like we said that God called Moses, remember God called Jesus. John 6, 38. According to Exodus 4, verses 14 through 16, Moses' brother Aaron was to be his herald. One commentator says that just as Moses was a prophet of God, so Aaron was to be a prophet of Moses. You can find that in Exodus 7, verse 1. The prophet had one job, to accurately represent the message of the one who sent him or her. This was God's solution to Moses' lack of eloquence. He was going to tell the message to Aaron, and Aaron would relay it. And the salvation of God uh, in the form of the gospel had an unlikely herald as well. A guy running around wearing animal skins, hairy, uncouth, John the Baptist. Just as Moses was a type of Christ, Aaron is a type of John the Baptist. As a matter of fact, did you know John was a descendant of Aaron from both his mother and his father's side? 
The Gospel of Luke makes a special point of this fact. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. That's John's mother, Luke 1 verse 5. And when God called Moses, notice that the Bible tells us he was shepherding sheep on the backside of the desert. As far as the Egyptians and the Hebrews were concerned, a simple shepherd out in the desert was unlikely to overthrow Pharaoh. He was also unlikely to break the chains of perhaps millions of slaves. Now consider now Jesus, the Savior of all the world, born in a manger. He made His home and despised Nazareth, Matthew 2.23. And Nathanael asked if anything good at all could come out of Nazareth. Nazareth was Jesus' backside of the desert, so to speak. Why was Nazareth looked down upon? I have a little excerpt from a scholar I'm going to read to you here. It's interesting. The whole of Galilee was a despised region in the eyes of the more polished Palestinians to the south. The Galileans were accused of being rude, illiterate, and devoid of culture. If you ever wondered why they could pick Peter out when he denied Christ three times, you're about to find out. Their pronunciation was said to be so thick that it led constantly to mortifying blunders, as when one could not tell from the word used whether a Galilean peasant had come to the market for an ass, which is Camor, or wine, Kimmer. You couldn't tell if they were saying sheepskin, Emmer, or wool, Emar. A Galilean woman inviting her guests to a table would say this, I'm going to give you milk to eat. But because of her accent, her Galilean pronunciation, it actually sounded like, may a lion eat you. <laughs> there are other such ambiguities mentioned occurring in the rude speech of the Galileans, but worse than all that is that the Galileans were said to be loose on points of doctrine. So that a, what this scholar says, a bad odor of heterodoxy hung over the province. That's just a fancy way of saying there were religious differences, and they, they viewed them as, as um, you know, people that were just putting on a show, so to speak, and they had none of the facts. It was not to Galilee that the Judean would naturally have looked for a great theological teacher, a rabbi like Jesus. Nazareth shared, of course, in the reproach to, which the, to the province to which it belonged. The town was just a simple, typical Galilean village, filled with warm-hearted and perhaps, as the Talmud suggests, warm-tempered people, meaning easily angered. And Peter fit that, that example again. It says his, his speech could be picked out as a Galilean, and he was hot-tempered. Think about when he cut the ear of the man off when they came to arrest Jesus. And supposedly they had little sympathy for the learned Judean rabbis. And that right there may be one of the reasons why God chose to use them. They were looked upon as ignorant rabble. And there's little reason for, uh, you know, basically expecting a Judean to look at Nazareth and say, you know, imagine they're the, the inhabitant of a great city, and you're going to look at a backwoods settlement for an erudite. It's like saying, uh, inhabitant of a college town, who thinks they're so wise and they know so much, going to a little backwoods town, about 300 people. They don't have proper grammar. 
I'll give you a quick story. If you've ever been to the Dyer Cemetery, um, there's a tombstone out there. And as I, I like to periodically go through and I read the things that are written about people on tombstones. It sounds weird to some people, but it gives you some kind of uh, clarity and gravity in life. If you go and you look at all those who've gone on before you and what they say. And there you'll find uh, more than one tombstone with improper grammar on it. Such like, uh, they was the light of our life. Forever engraved on stone. Now somebody from... University of Arkansas might wander that cemetery and say, these ignorant rubes, look at them, they can't even use proper grammar on a tombstone, and their stupidity is forever carved there. But if you continue reading below that, what it talks about is they're the light of their life, and they're seated beside Jesus right now, looking up at him, singing songs of praise because of the way they lived their life. It says he died as he lived, a Christian. And henceforth there is laid up for him treasure in heaven. There's wisdom there. God uses the simple to confound the wise. He uses what is foolish to the world all the time. And that's what he did with Jesus coming out of Nazareth. He chose a place where he would draw his people, fishermen, humble, simple people, to bring forth the teachings of the Messiah and the Messiah himself. So here we have our leaders cast, Moses and Jesus, that we're looking at. But God didn't stop there, and this is where that I want to develop the story a little bit more. The world was prepped for their arrival so that their work would have maximum impact and bring the most glory to God. So let's look at what happened with Moses. First of all, we see ten dramatic plagues that God brought forth. Let's consider these plagues and how they can relate to our lives. First of all, the waters became blood for the Egyptians. Likewise, we are spiritually thirsty. There were frogs everywhere. We're harassed by our sin and its presence in our lives. It's everywhere. We can't get rid of it. Lice. We all have an itch that cannot be scratched or relieved when we're separated from God. No matter what pleasure or device or vice we follow or chase after, it's just not satisfying, isn't it? If the only thing you look forward to at Christmas is the presents, once they're opened and you see them, you have a, a sense that something is just not right. What do you have left to look forward to? Your fulfillment is in the wrong things. Flies, corruption and rot touches everything. All is defiled by our fallen state. Their livestock were diseased in Egypt. Likewise, our wealth in the things of this world is unreliable, it's useless, and it's easily taken from us. They had boils on their bodies in Egypt, painful sores, and we are faced with crippling affliction and pain, spiritually. Hail rained down, huge pieces of hail that were killing livestock and people, destroying homes. We too meet with overwhelming catastrophe in our lives, things that can threaten to destroy and break us, Locust, we're hungry spiritually, but the things that we try to sustain ourselves on, they're eaten up, leaves us starving. Darkness. Despite all the evidence around us leading us to the truth, we can't see it. Without God to help us, we're simply blind and we can't even take the smallest step to do anything to save ourselves. And then there was the death of the firstborn. And so too today, death comes and still takes what is most precious to us, life. It's quite the dramatic scene upon which Moses 
And later Jesus have been thrust, isn't it? In both cases, there is great trouble in the land because of mankind's fallen state. In the time of Pharaoh and today, we're faced with the fact that, you know, sin and great trouble, it's here. But the story is in how we are able to respond to it. You know, I believe that Pharaoh's response to Moses and his rebellion against God, that is another type of the progression of sin in all men. Because I want you to see more than just one man who was hardened in his heart toward God. I want you to see him and the Egyptians at that time as a representation of all mankind. And the reason they're that way is because they're not in right accord with God. Let's read further to illustrate what I mean. So if you look at, I'm not going to read all these verses. You can see them up here. But I want you to see, first of all, that God gives clear warning, but our hearts aren't moved. I'm going to speak for us as though we were in Pharaoh's position. Put your salvation aside for a minute and just imagine the condition of fallen man. God gives us clear warning, but our hearts aren't moved. We make half-hearted commitments to get what we want, but as soon as the pressure is relieved, we go back to our old ways. Our trusted advisors, people we know that we can and should trust, perhaps people who love us, point out the clear truth to us, but we refuse to listen. We try to dictate terms. Look at what Pharaoh said. I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you shall not go very far away from me and treat for me. He means entreat to God for him. But you know what? In his heart, he never intended to honor that. He was just giving lip service. In our hearts, we don't always intend to really do what we promise to because we're full of deceit. We go and we see with our own eyes the truth, but we're still petulant and stubborn about it. And I'm talking about the truth of who Jesus is. The truth about our sin. Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not one of the cattle of the Israelites dead, and the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. At this point, things weren't serious enough yet for Pharaoh, I guess. He went out and he saw everything Moses is saying is true. I can see that only those of us who are not under God's protection are affected, but, but you know, it's not enough for me. Later, we may be brought to our knees in pain, and yet we might still refuse to submit. The magicians here, who were standing in defiance for Pharaoh to God, they couldn't stand before Moses at one point because they had these painful boils on their body. But again, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he hearkened not unto them, just like the Lord said that he would do. And then we see God's blessing on those who did submit, on the Hebrews. We can look in this world, if you are not saved, if you're falling away from God, if you're wandering on your own, you can look about you, you can see children of God, you can see people walking in the will of God, submitting to God, and they're richly blessed, aren't they? They're protected. And we can see that we're not, and it bothers us. Pharaoh says, I've sinned this time. 
The Lord is righteous and I and my people, we're wicked. Entreat the Lord. Pray to the Lord for me because, man, this is enough. I've had enough, Moses. Let there be, be no more mighty thunderings and hail. Stop the destruction, please. And I'll let you go and you'll stay no longer. So Moses did that. God relented. And in verse 34, And when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunders were ceased, he sinned yet more. He hardened his heart, he and his servants. As soon as God relents, we're back to our usual selves as though it never happened. This isn't unique to Pharaoh, is it? Isn't this what we all do? Then we become bitter. We're filled with hatred over the call to submit. We despise those who have submitted to God because their righteousness highlights our sinfulness, doesn't it? You don't like to be around a goody-two-shoes. You know, um, when I was in the, the Air Force, we used to have these annual uh, awards banquets. It never failed. We'd have to go to a casino. It failed sometimes, but mo more often than not, we ended up in a casino. And oh, I detested those places. Um, for practical reasons, like it smelled and I didn't like the people that were there to spiritual reasons, I don't believe in gambling. Uh, and, and you know, I was with, we had to stay with our leadership. This always irritated me too. If you wanted to remain on your leadership's good side, you had to go spend time with them. Pretend that you liked doing it. And I didn't, but I went. So we'd go to these places where the slot machines were and where, um, yeah, where people are drinking, stuff like that. And, it got to the point where the invites came to me less often. You know why? Because I would sit there and I wouldn't drink with them. Uh, or they'd be gambling and I wouldn't do that with them. Yes, I was standing there. I wasn't smiling. I typically had the normal look on my face. I didn't say anything. If they asked me a question, I would smile and be polite. But they knew that I didn't approve. Uh, I didn't even have to say I didn't approve. Just the fact I was there change. You know, Aubrey told me a story about how at Sonic, you know, she hasn't asked for people to not curse around her, but she notices that they stop after a while. You've had that happen to you probably too, right? And if you're like me, you're like, man, I I'll have people apologize to me sometimes. And I said, first of all, I never told you I was a Christian. Second of all, I didn't ask you to stop anything. And you, you sometimes think, man, God really is doing something beyond me because I don't feel like I'm putting off any kind of good vibes at all. Uh, and yet, God is working there. When you're around people like that and you're in a fallen state, you're not listening to God, maybe you're not saved, those people make you mad. Those people you don't want to be around. And likewise, Pharaoh. Pharaoh retorted, the Lord will certainly need to be with you if I let you take your little ones. I can see through your evil plan. Never. Only the men may go and worship the Lord since that is what you requested and Pharaoh threw them out of the palace. He knows at this point he has to do what's being asked of him. He's trying to get a dig in as he's obeying. And it's hard to obey when you're in rebellion, when you're being forced to obey as Pharaoh was. It's the same for us. It's the state that Jesus finds us in. Even when we're in a state of total incapacitation, we still think we can negotiate and bargain with God about our sin. But God doesn't negotiate, does He? He's sovereign. Pharaoh called for Moses and he said, Go and worship the Lord. He said, But leave your flocks and your herds here. You may even take your little ones with you. Now he's being generous, right? 
we're being generous with God, we say, God, you know, I'll go to church, but don't expect me to get baptized or anything. You know, I'm doing you a favor after all. And I'm not going to sing. It's bad enough I have to listen to that noise, let alone participate in it. You know, that anger, that resentment, that bitterness. Isn't it interesting how Pharaoh continues to think he has some power control. He gives permission to take the little ones here. But he's been rendered powerless at every turn. It's not like it's a surprise to him. And even when we're in a state of total incapacitation and we start to negotiate with God, what does he say to us? It's the same thing Moses said. Moses said in response to this, he said, Our livestock also shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. You simply don't negotiate with the almighty creator of the universe. But I bet there's somebody that gets angry over that, over hearing that. You mean I can't negotiate? That's unreasonable. That's not fair. Well, Pharaoh is angry too, and look at what he said here. He said in Exodus 10, 27-28, Got a slide ahead there. It says, I'm warning you, never come back to see me again. The day you see my face, you will die. He's pretty angry, isn't he? At this point, Pharaoh thinks he's unleashed his anger. He has pulled all the stops. He's about to exercise the nuclear option, as it were. You don't make Pharaoh mad. He's been putting up with you because he's kind and gracious up to this point, but now... Now I'm Pharaoh, I'm mad. You called down the thunder, prepare for the boom. You recognize that from the Grinch? We're talking about Christmas. But friends, when we go this route, we aren't pronouncing a consequence on God. We're pronouncing a consequence on ourselves, as we see in Exodus 10, 29. Moses responded to this and he says, Thou hast spoken well. I will see thy face again no more. Have you ever said something that the moment that it came out of your mouth, you were filled with fear and regret? Sometimes the worst thing a raging man can be told is, okay, you get what you ask for. We spend a lot of time threatening, a lot of time raging, a lot of time letting idle words spill out that we can't take back. And one of these days, somebody's going to say, thou hast spoken well, I will see thy face no more. You can only spit in the face of God for so long. And I want you to notice that as Pharaoh puffed up and blustered about his power, he was diminished. But, as you can see in this verse here, Moses continued to find favor. He was elevated in stature and reputation. At the point where Pharaoh lost all composure, lost his temper, screamed and railed, that was the moment in which God also struck out in judgment when the firstborn were killed. You can see that in Exodus 11, 4 through 8. Now, at this point, I want to stop and ask anybody who can hear, is God pleading with you? Is He commanding you? Are you telling Him no? Each time are you getting more flippant, more disrespectful, more angry? If you are, just understand that there's going to come a time when God's going to respond to you and say, okay, 
You get what you ask for. I don't like it. But if you want to be separate and apart from me, then that's what you'll have for all eternity. His judgment on those who reject Him will be terrible. And in the dark of that fateful night, <clears throat> Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron to him. And he said, you know, everything you want, do it, go. But bless me as you leave. Now what blessing could there be for this reprobate sinner? Who had rejected God so many times before? Pharaoh knew who God was, he just didn't want to submit to Him. When he'd been humbled, Pharaoh decided to ask for a blessing, for some mercy from God. God had been willing to give him mercy every single time before that, but his heart continued to be hardened. In Luke 16, Jesus tells a similar story of a rich man who'd gone to hell and he was begging for just a drop of water on his tongue to ease his pain and suffering. But Abraham told him that the time for such blessings was past, just as it was past for Pharaoh. The stage is set. The progression of sin in our lives is inevitable, and it's a bleak picture, isn't it? At this point, remember, I just want you to be thinking about what's life like before Christ. This is why we celebrate the coming of our Savior. We're about to see the provision of God, His plan for protection and for salvation in the form of the Passover lamb, and how ultimately this Passover was a type and picture of Christ. So, uh, you have the Passover lamb. Christ is our Passover lamb. That lamb, we're told, had to be without blemish. Christ was out without blemish, without sin. Had to be a male of the first year. Jesus is God's only begotten son. The whole congregation of Israel had to kill it at twilight. You remember what happened with Jesus? Matthew 27, verse 20. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Jesus was the Passover lamb and all the congregation of Israel stood to kill him. You see how the Old Testament's being fulfilled. Exodus 12, 46b says that they could not break any of the bones of the Passover lamb. John 19, 31 through 33, you see a curious story of how, why Jesus' bones were not broken. You know, when you got crucified, hung up on a cross, it took you days to die sometimes. Eventually, due to exhaustion, you would sag down and um, you would suffocate. It was a very long death. Well, since the Sabbath was coming, the Jews didn't want to have bodies hanging on crosses, so they told the soldiers, hey, go ahead, go break their legs. Let's speed this process up. The sooner they slump down, the sooner they'll suffocate. So they break the legs of the one guy with Jesus, then the other. They come to Jesus, though, they find that he's already dead, so they didn't break his legs. It's highly unusual. You don't normally die that quickly when you're crucified, but Jesus did in fulfillment of Exodus 12, 46b. He's our Passover lamb. Not a bone was broken. And what was that blood? You know, the blood was what was important. The blood in those sacrifices was poured out 
on the altar as an atonement for sins. So, Jesus, He had died, passed away on the cross. They weren't even breaking His legs. What was going to happen? Well, curiously, a soldier, this was also unusual, they shoved that spear into His side and out came blood and water. His blood was shed along with water. Now, there's people from the medical profession that say, well, the water had separated from the blood and all that, but symbolically, you're talking about the cleansing power of the blood and you come in contact with the blood through the waters of what? Baptism. And then the Jews were also told as by Moses as the Passover was approaching, you know, to protect their kids from dying, their firstborn. He said, eat in haste, do not delay, and be ready to go. Jesus said, Matthew 25, 13, Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. And then he proceeded a chapter later to institute the Lord's Supper. And he broke bread with them. Everything that was required in the Old Testament is being fulfilled by God, by Christ. Something else that's interesting. Christ's Passover sacrifice is the only way. Moses, God told Moses and Aaron that this ordinance of the Passover that they were going to uh, continue to enact every year, that no stranger should eat thereof. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Acts 2, 38, 41, and 47. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Then they that gladly received His word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Also in Revelation chapter 7, verses 14 through 16, we can, we can read, And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, Who are these people? He's asking. These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in what? The blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He sitteth on the throne and shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. We talked about the plagues. Remember, they were thirsty. They were hungry because the rivers had turned to blood, the locusts had eaten up all their food, the flies had caused rot. Just in the same spiritual state the world is in, verse 16 says, They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst. They'll not burn in the sun's heat. They're before the throne of God, serving Him forever. Why? Because they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, that Passover Lamb, which is Christ. He's the only way. You see what they're brought into here? The house of God. If you are not of the house of God, you cannot eat the Passover lamb. Only those who are bought and paid for can eat. You see this? But every man's servant that is bought for money, when thou hast circumcised him, thou shalt eat therefore. Let's reword that real quick. But every servant of God that is bought by Christ... 
when he has been baptized, he shall eat thereof. Basically the same thing, different words. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Our works can't earn it, though. Exodus 12, 45b says, An hired servant shall not eat thereof. Now what exactly is the difference between a servant who's been bought that we just saw here, a servant that is bought for money, and a servant that is hired? Well, I would submit to you that the hired servant is not a servant in subjection. He's doing things on his own terms. I will work for you if you will pay me this. I will work for you under these conditions. Most of us would not go take a job and say, you know what, I'm going to come work for you doing any job you want, any time you want, for any pay you want, under any circumstances you want, because I trust you that much. Would you ever do that? No, but if you did, it would show you had a really special relationship with that employer, right? That's not how we do things. We're a hired servant because we want to call the shots. You cannot call the shots. If you were a hired servant, not a person of the people of Israel, you could not eat the Passover. But if you submitted yourselves entirely, let yourself be sold in service to the Jews, you could then be circumcised, become one of them, and eat that Passover and receive its protection. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We don't work our way by calling the shots into God's kingdom. We either bought and paid for or we're not. And this is interesting too. <clears throat> they were told that the Passover could not be eaten outside of the house. You can see that in 46, verse 46a. Ephesians 2, 19-22. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye are also built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Are you in the house of God? Do you know how to get into the house of God? The Bible, we just read earlier that you get into the house of God is Christ's church. You get into Christ's church by being baptized into it. If you're not in the church, you're unable to partake of that saving Passover. You don't have its protection. And finally, circumcision and covenant was required. Notice what Paul says about circumcision. He says, you know, the, the covenant of the Jews that said they were set aside as God's chosen people was circumcision. Paul says, he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. It's not about that physical circumcision. He said, but he is a Jew. You are a true child of God, in other words, if you are one inwardly. And circumcision is of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter of the law, whose praise is not of men, not of our works, but of God and God's works, of God in the work of Christ. This is all the Passover. This is all... Just think about all this stuff that was set up all that time before in the Old Testament. All pointing towards something that Christ would do. And just think, what is the likelihood that someone could come and fulfill that so perfectly? And whenever it became clear that he had come, when he was born, people weren't celebrating a new baby. 
They were celebrating that the one person in all of creation that could be our Passover lamb had arrived. As we conclude this morning, I just hope that it's easier for us to see how Jesus is not only in the nativity scene. Jesus is not only in Christmas. I'm not saying it's wrong to celebrate his birth, but if you stop there, that is wrong. His birth was like just the first step. Jesus is in that story of Moses. Jesus is in the Old Testament. Jesus is in all things since the beginning of time. God's been planning for him, promising him, preparing the way for him long before he sent him to the manger. When Jesus was born, it wasn't the miracle of a new baby, a, a star, the words of an angel that brought all that joy. Those were all reasons for joy, but the true reason was that he'd come. The promised Messiah, God in the flesh, the one who could free us from enslavement to sin, like the Hebrews were enslaved. The one who had the power to overthrow the great master of this world, Satan, like Pharaoh was overthrown. The one who fulfilled the Passover physically and spiritually for all time so that we might be saved, that death might be overthrown, that its powers may pass over us because of the blood of the Passover lamb, and that the wicked powers which enslave us can be ultimately destroyed. That's who came. That's reason for great joy. Has He saved you? Have your chains been broken? Has that which enslaved you been overthrown? Have you partaken in the Passover which is Christ? Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? It may seem unlikely that all this was done for you. <clears throat> it may seem unlikely that He can do all the things He says He can do. But God uses that which is lowly, unesteemed by men, and seemingly unlikely to accomplish His great works. That is why we have the history of Jesus' birth captured. It's not that the birth was the most important thing. It's the conditions and the circumstances of it. The humility of Christ and the great power that God used when someone submits to Him in great humility. Look what can be done. Jesus is the first fruits. We can follow in His footsteps. Believe, repent, confess the name of Christ, and obey the gospel by submitting to the waters of baptism for the remission of your sins and eternal salvation. Please, if you haven't, please. Or perhaps that there's another type of person in the audience who has willingly put the shackles back on your feet. Maybe you've shuffled outside God's house and now you find yourself hungry, starving even, but you cannot eat of the Passover. Remember, you're not a hired servant. You've been bought and paid for so that you may eat. So go back inside and eat. Come back to God. Pray for His restoration and help. He is always there. He never leaves you, forsakes you. If there be one of either case this morning, we'd ask you to come forward, have a seat on that front bench, make your, your needs or your wishes known, and we'd be happy to help you as we stand and sing the invitation song. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71, Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.